0: You know, they say, and this is going to sound very basic, but you are what you eat, um, in that, you know, we are what we consume. We're also the world that we consume around us. So everything, I mean, whatever we listen to, whoever we listen to, what we read, what the people we surround ourselves with that becomes who we are. And architecture is very much a part of that also. How we move and navigate through space and what we absorb uh, from that is very much a part of that on a a deeply subconscious level.
1: This is the Latitudes Podcast, the voice for art from Africa, and I'm your host, Refilu Mpaganyanem. Powered by i2Art Insurum, Season 1 of the Latitudes podcast explores new ways of accessing and thinking about the contemporary visual arts from Africa, while also building a robust archive of thought leadership. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than i2Art Insurum. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, i2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, i2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. i2 Art Insure is an authorized financial services provider. I'm so excited about the Latitudes podcast, and I'm incredibly honoured that you've chosen to grow the Latitudes community by subscribing to and sharing the podcast. My guest today is award-winning architect, Professor Sumaya Valley, and she joins me to talk about architecture as an artistic medium, as well as to explore its impact on local social narratives. Sumaya is the principal of the award-winning architecture and research firm called Counterspace, And her design, in her words, research and pedagogical practice, is searching for expression, for hybrid identities and territory, particularly for African and Islamic conditions. Her process is often forensic, and it draws on the oral, the oral, the ritual, supernatural, and the overlooked as generative places of history and work." You'll hear all of this coming through quite strongly in our conversation, and you'll also get an impressive sense of the intellect that got her selected by the World Economic Forum to be one of its young global leaders. This also got her a place on the World Monuments Fund Board of Directors. And finally, but not only, Sumaya now leads a new master's program called Hydra at the Royal College of Art, and she's an honorary professor of practice at the Bartlett School of Architecture in London. Sma Valley, thank you so much for your time. Welcome to the Latitudes Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's so wonderful to be here and to be having a conversation with South Africans, especially in the context of art. So it's incredible that you're doing this podcast and I'm delighted to be your guest.
1: Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> so our conversation, Sumaya, is exactly that. It centers around... The practice of architecture as an artistic medium, uh, as well as its impact on local social narratives. So, in many ways, we're preaching to the choir on this particular platform when we extol the wonders of architecture as an artistic medium with the ability to transform as well as to influence communities and society. Right. But today, we'll also be delving into the why, the how of your practice, and perhaps, where possible, just get some behind-the-scenes tea, if at all. But. But let's start at that point and then we'll stop, we'll graze, we'll ruminate on other sort of interesting matters that pop up along the way. But please, if you could just anchor us in what is your ethos, your philosophy, your own approach to architecture. When one reads the literature around counter space and your own description of yourselves, it reads this way that the practice occupies a space between the functional and the speculative Pedagogy and practice simultaneously describing cities, their histories and futures, and imagining them. But for a lay person such as myself, talking to my friends and my family uh, over a shared meal, how do I describe your philosophical approach to architecture and the built environment?
0: Hmm. Um, yes, yeah, so Counter Space was started when I was still a student with a group of friends, and we were in our master's year. And at that time, I remember very vividly being very much in love with Johannesburg and being incredibly, incredibly inspired by the city. And I think I couldn't articulate it at the time, but I felt very deeply that what I was seeing around me in the city, you know, really being witness to the goings-on of the city, the rhythms of the city, seeing people live in the city and find ways to make the city home, especially despite being so excluded from our city's built environment. I found very, very interesting as fuel for practice. And I wanted to be able to have a space to translate these things into architecture because I, I think the architecture and the built fabric that we have not only in south africa but all over the world in south africa perhaps more so is very much inherited from elsewhere in our case from you know through colonization and apartheid architecture was very much a part of uh, that the the tools of the apartheid regime in that mm-hmm. you know of course we know that from an urban planning perspective we all lived separately But even on the architectural scale, we are told something about who we are and who's in power based on um, what we see around us. So architecture kind of affirms who we are in the world because we're in conversation with it. And we're told what we deserve by the built fabric around us. And I am very much a believer that there are so many design languages waiting to happen from Johannesburg, from our context, from our conditions, from our identities. And I wanted to see this manifest. I felt that from what I saw around me in the canon and what I saw in the profession, this was not really happening. We were somehow Mm -hmm. not investing in imagining from our identities and our perspectives. And I believe so deeply in that. And and that's why Counter Space was formed.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is such a beautiful... Synthesis and crystallization of your philosophy and why you work and how you work and what really just hit me right now when you talk about the way our cities are are, are built and our buildings are made and planned uh, says so much or informs us right whether on a subconscious level yes. who we are what we deserve in our place in society you just put me in mind of reading about you know apartheid laws literally legislating mm-hmm. how rooms for um domestic workers for maids, yes, could be built, so that kind of legislation it wasn't just spatial about debt and spatial planning regarding how far apart we must live uh, apart yes. from each other and how, but down to the if you have a black uh servant living on yes. your court, uh, in on your premises, they will have a room that is so many square meters large with a window that is only so big and positioned yes. high up on the wall because they can receive some light and some air but they may not and should not be seen by visitors by yourselves etc so yeah uh, it, it's it also that intentionality and that understanding of what it is what you're affirming or what you're dehumanizing through the practice of um, the built environment and architecture is so key. Do you think that for the younger generation, and I don't even like asking that question, but perhaps when you talk about a post-apartheid South Africa uh, or even a post-colonial setting, that we are so jubilant and excited about this newfound political freedom that we underestimate the strength and the power of the structure and the machine um and 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 it's intention to dehumanize and dismantle us um that we don't understand or we don't appreciate the depth and the the scope of the work that must be done in reaffirming yeah. or even building ourselves up once again and the minutiae unfortunately yes. of that de- that you know that perversion that happened before
0: yes uh, absolutely i think it is Uh, The the, the architecture is so powerful because it is completely subconscious. We are all born into the world and we're born into a built world, so to speak. Um, And these these environments really have an impact on our mental mapping as we're growing up exactly as you described that situation on an architectural level tells someone about their place in the world and what they deserve and it goes sure. down into such minutia um and you know colonization and apartheid really were so meticulously planned down to the smallest detail that even to the scale of dust in Johannesburg, black settlements were placed in the direction that wind blows and blows dust from mine dumps onto townships so that the townships are covered in yellow dust. And that has meant that there's generational lung disease. And it goes on and on and on from the macro scale to, you know, Placing people next to toxic buffer zones, or for in the case of apartheid, for white people, uh, placing white people next to zoos, parks, and trees so that they wouldn't have to interact with other races through these beautiful buffers. You know, that's thinking about it on a macro scale, but on every single scale, you know, the way that bodies walk in public and the distances that those bodies need to traverse down to, as we said, the room and the architectural scale or the kind of facilities that were provided and what those hospitals and schools looked like, and then down to the scale of dust. On on every single level, it's so resilient and so meticulously planned Mm -hmm. that it is completely systemic, and we need to be able to understand that. I think if we don't, we run the risk of, perpetuating legacies and perpetuating ways of building without deeply thinking about where they're coming from. And then we're standing in a certain kind of politics that we might not agree with.
1: Mm, mm, Yeah, cue that... Those awful, awful RDP houses that we just build in rows and rows and rows, and not a green space planned or attached to any of that, um, and no point of, I guess, relief for the imagination, for the mind to, deve- to develop, for children to imagine mm-hmm. themselves in lush, uh, you know, um, nurturing environments. We could go on, right, Sumaya?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. So architecture as a fine art form, which is what brings us to um, today's conversations, you know, once again, I'll say very, very happily, I am a (laughs) layperson. And so just reading various sort of um, articles and write-ups around schools of thoughts that inform the work that you do. And, you know, and just a simple sort of reference around the ancient Romans and the belief that you know buildings have to have uh, three very important things. There's obviously utility, um, there's strength, but then uh, finally and fundamentally is uh, beauty as well. So the two are structural, but the one is artistic. But further to that, Sumaya, and I guess in many ways speaking to um, our conversation thus far, what does the what does beauty in architecture and in design mean for you. So perhaps you can point us to when you were studying, who were you reading? What practitioners were you looking to, to inform that uh, that thinking? Um, but also, as you think about the work that you do, Samaya, the place of beauty in the work that you do is what, if at all?
0: It's absolutely fundamental, I think that there is no deeper political power than that of beauty. And I think when we think about projects, and if we take South Africa, for example, you mentioned RDP housing. We think about architecture so often in terms of service delivery, because there are huge wrongs in our country that need to be righted. But if we negate the project of beauty, then we're not giving this deeper social level, this deeper level of social justice, an opportunity to manifest. And if we think about the ways of being that we come from and our cultures, beauty has always been central to how we live. There was no distinction between ornament and function, and, you know, if we look at many, many vernacular African architectures or Indian architectures or Mexican architectures, these southern conditions and ways of being, architecture was a mental project first and foremost from the very beginning. Mm. We think, If mm-hmm. we think back to the first humans, even, there's... Probably an imagination that the first structures were about shelter or survival, but actually the first structures were about burial, and they helped us to negotiate something on a mental level and you know this this project of memorializing, this project of remembering, this project of honoring that is at the depth of what architecture is about, and I think that yeah. there is so much power in architecture manifesting on an aesthetic level and in terms of how we feel in a space, emotion and beauty, that capacity for it to move us is immense. Again, if we think about the apartheid project and if we think about colonization, the things that we see on structures represent someone and they also, somehow I think we can understand that the apartheid project worked so resiliently to keep us apart and if we can yeah. see that then we have to fundamentally understand that architecture can also be employed for the opposite it can bring us together and it can also manifest different identities when i was in architecture mm-hmm. school i don't believe and i think that this is you know a worldwide issue around our curricula being colonized. I don't think that we learned enough about the architectures of our identities, and you know these southern ways of being that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, when we did learn about African architecture, I think it was we learned about Egypt, but even that was as a precursor to modernism. But also for the most part, it did feel quite pejorative and as if we were studying Mm -hmm. something primitive. I remember reading about fractals in African architecture, this phenomenon that from the smallest scale to the largest scale, uh, the the architectures in kraals and in settlements reflect Something about the cosmos. That intelligence we were not taught about. We we learned about things from a very objective perspective, a material level, um, you know, very mm-hmm. much about planning, not mm-hmm. necessarily about ethos or about what these phenomena mean for connecting us to each other, connecting us to higher powers. So there was definitely something in my interest that was piqued, and I did look into um architects from elsewhere. I was very inspired by Jeffrey Bauer. I was very inspired by Isamu Noguchi um, and several others. I was also very inspired by artistic practice more broadly. Um, yeah. But my biggest inspiration has always been Johannesburg. For all of its challenges and all of its flaws, mm-hmm. I very much felt like the lifeblood of my conceptual thinking is coming from the conditions that we find in the city. And that has been my greatest teacher.
1: After the break, we continue our conversation When it comes to fuss-free flying, Lyft is South Africa's most flexible airline. With up to 25 daily flights, three major destinations, fee-free changes and cancellations, as well as Lyft Premium, the business-class inspired offering, Lyft caters to all travellers, even those with small dogs. Their dog-friendly flights mean you can fly with your small dog in the cabin. Plus, you can look forward to free coffee and snacks on every flight. Experience Lyft for yourself. Visit lift.co.za to book your seat. You mentioned Jeffrey Bauer as someone whose work you looked at and turned to in your own studies beyond the curriculum as a student. And you announced recently that you'll be designing a pavilion for reading centered around three sculptures at Jeffrey Bauer's garden estate in Sri Lanka. Talk to me about what it means to, in many ways, I'm going to call it meet your hero <laughs> or at least be able to speak to, his, uh, to Jeffrey's legacy in that way. How did that come about and what are you thinking around the pavilion and what you want to add to it in terms mm. of his legacy, his, his work?
0: it's it's very very recent news um and the design hasn't been unveiled yet or you know we're actually still working yeah. on it so i'll say whatever i can but uh, forgive me for what i can't say also
1: no just um, yeah, yeah absolutely just even the impetus the feeling yes. around it yeah
0: absolutely so uh, jeffrey was i mean he was such a giant in terms of what he did Manette de Silva and Jeffrey Bauer were really the first architects to work with vernacular intelligences and think about them in completely new ways. So they created these structures that were incredibly modern, but at the same time they employed ways of being, ways of thinking, forms of decoration that came from vernacular Sri Lankan architectures. And so you'll see often in Jeffrey's buildings that the way that he built, it really incorporates many, many different styles and is, in a way, of its own genre. And, you know, it's, it's n- not comparable to anything else at the time. They were really pioneers of this kind of movement. The way that they allowed the weather to enter into the building is completely Mm -hmm. non-Western. And you'll see, I've um, spent some time in Jeffrey's own home, which is called Number 11 in Colombo. And you'll see very often in the home that there are courtyards and there are places where, you know, the rain literally comes into the house. And there are trees that are growing in the home. And it's such a beautiful way to live, to have the climate present in the house um, you know, in in some areas, uh, where you can actually witness a tropical thunderstorm from inside the home, and you have this close Beautiful. relationship with nature. It's completely non-Western. Yeah. I think in many non-Western languages, there is no concept of environment. It's nothing that's outside of ourselves. We see ourselves on the same plane as everything around us, and that sensibility is something that I find really, really inspiring and interesting about his work. But there are so many things in in terms of how resourceful he was. You know, uh, a lot of his work was at the time of sanctions and nothing could be brought into the country. So he worked with recycling doors and columns and aspects of traditional architectures And he brought them into these very, very modern structures. And every single Mm -hmm. element was handmade. Um, And, you know, down-to-door fittings and light fittings, everything was completely thought about. Um, And nothing was assumed as, you know, you can buy this off the shelf and, and bring it in. And the other thing is that he really imagined a place not from the top down, but as a series of experiences or a set of scenes. Uh, It's said Mm -hmm. that he designed a building like an experience through a garden. And he very much centered the body in space and this experience of looking ahead and being in space rather than this top-down approach, which again I think can be considered something that is uh, quite Western. The zenith Mm -hmm. view of arrogance that you look at things from the top down without considering The experience of the body in space.
1: Um,
0: And it's been, I mean, it's been incredible for me to have the opportunity to be in his garden and to be working on a project there now. I first um, made contact with the Jeffrey Bauer Trust when they invited me to be their memorial lecture honoree last year. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the lecture just happened to take place around the 9th of May, which is the height of a moment of public protest that the country has faced. And Mm. I remember that, you know, when I was on my way to the airport, and I was about to get onto the plane, um, the trust called me from Sri Lanka and said, you don't have to come. This is a huge moment of political turbulence. And we completely respect your decision if you would like to You know, stay, we can think about postponing or doing something online. And I was very scared at the time. I didn't know what Mm -hmm. to do. And I asked them, what is the trust take on this moment? And what is your stance in Mm -hmm. terms of what's happening in the country? And they said, you know, we really believe that at times of crisis and in times like this, this is when we really have to use the power of art and culture to speak up. And this is the time that we get to work. And I said, I have to go. Um, And I rewrote the lecture so that it was very much centered around this moment of political shift. Of course, working with my experience as a South African and a Johannesburger um, as a point of resonance. And we I, I think that meant a lot to them. Um, and, you know, it's been wonderful to be in conversation and in collaboration ever since.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely beautiful. But uh, you don't give yourself enough credits, Samaya. We are born and bred in Johannesburg in Gauteng and Lodium for you. Uh, we got this <laughs> when it comes to facing <laughs> danger. Unfortunately, not to trivialize something very serious. But, you know, to that point, Maya, you had a rather interesting conversation on Al Jazeera, the news network, where you were talking about exactly that the power of architecture to speak to important moments, to speak to significant political moments. And I just want you to elaborate on that for me, because that is ultimately the hope of every artist, right? That in their work should be uh, contained the hopes, the dreams, or some important or vital point uh, that the audience or the person viewing it will find will hold significant and perhaps cause a shift. And I wonder how your view of architecture's power to do this um, looks like. If art is naturally political, architecture, of course, is political. How do you respond to political moments and address them?
0: Um, I think first and foremost, there's, there's something about the spirit of a moment of shift that somehow imbues itself in the work. And I think it is exactly that, that at moments of turbulence, we we can either have a fight or flight reaction and we can either somehow become numbed and become despondent or we mm-hmm. can see that as a call to arms and we can use our work and see the importance of our work in that moment. And sometimes when I speak to a younger generation, I feel that because there is a certain level of distance to these moments of political shift, that it also feels like there's less at stake in the work. It feels like there can be a certain level of complacency because we haven't fully absorbed the importance of what it is that our forefathers did in order for us to have the lives that we have today. And, mm. um, you know, I think that having that proximity somehow is is very important and the more ways that we can find to educate the younger generation about these moments that we that our ancestors have had to go through for us the more we can ensure that this project is continuing because we really are standing on the shoulders of so many others Mm -hmm. Um, i hate to be Mm -hmm. cheesy but we're you know we're standing on the shoulders of Nelson Mandela, we're standing on the shoulders of Malcolm X, of Steve Biko, of so many great people who have really made the lives that we have possible.
1: That intergenerational conversation that you're sort of alluding to is one that I'm interested in because there seems to be that that disjoint in the South African context, but anywhere that you look around the world mm. where younger people are looking up at, at, at older people and saying, Either you misled us or, you know, you gave us um, false promises or empty promises, uh, including, you know, that, the, that roads must Fall moment that you alluded to when you were graduating in South mm. Africa. But it's a global phenomenon. And I wonder, um, how, how do you have them in a way where you speak, you are listened to, they speak, they also are listened to. And we all have an appreciation for each other's perspectives, but most importantly, the end goal. Um, because in many ways... Uh, I wonder if you are garnering that kind of goodwill and that making that space because ultimately you want that to also survive and be passed down along the line as your own buildings and as your own architecture stands way yes. after you've left us um as a signifier of these same philosophies.
0: Yes, I think that you know it's about finding an entry point where people understand this is my history and where the weight and the magnitude of that can be felt because then i think that wherever we go we will be able to see and find that resonance and i'll talk about the project in belgium in a bit um and how you know i feel like on a personal level we as south africans can connect to that story and and that was my, that is my always my entry point and my point of connection Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I think uh, on the one hand, I grew up in Lodium, as you said, and I went to a Muslim school for my entire life from preschool to matric. Um, and I had a very in community life for, you know, all of my childhood. So I really Mm -hmm. felt very connected to community initiatives, um, You know, we grew up with giants who also were a part of the struggle and we were very much involved in charity initiatives, in working with NGOs, in, you know, really thinking about what is beyond our community and how we connect with a greater story, not just in South Africa, but across the world. And I really think that that kind of upbringing has meant a lot for my practice Shrimp. I also, when I graduated, I was, and this is just, you know, how the, de- the dots connect. I was very lucky. I didn't work for an architectural firm when I finished my master's. The first practice I worked in was a museum and narrative practice called um, the Library Special Projects. Uh, I'm yeah, still working well, with them today. We're collaborating on on several things. It's beautiful. Um, but I feel like much of the work that we were doing was really about uh, listening to our history. And I remember on one project that was very much centered around the women's struggle, as we were working, we really were uncovering archive. And uh-huh. you know, we were listening to testimony of women who had experienced circumstances, who had experienced real struggle, who had been taken by police and who were treated like common criminals just for having proximity to to the struggle. And I think hearing and feeling that deeply has also somehow given me a real appreciation for that struggle and an understanding that that is also my struggle, that we have to honor and take on what these giants have done for us and and continue that project on. The other thing about the office, uh, that office, was that there was a lot of different disciplines working in the same space. Um, There was a publishing house uh, on the ground floor. And uh, on the upper floor, the space was always filled with writers and researchers and poets and, you know, all the people that we were collaborating with across generation. And that is something also that we took into counter space somehow by osmosis, that we have this ethos of collaborating with other disciplines, but also with other generations up and down, because I I genuinely believe that there is so much to be learned from each other. And somehow we can only embody each other's stories through that level of proximity. That somehow there's a natural empathy that is built through that.
1: We continue our conversation after the short break. Latitudes Online is the world's leading online marketplace for art from Africa. Discover and buy artworks from over 1,700 artists and enjoy editorial from leading voices on the continent. When you buy from Latitudes Online, you have peace of mind that your artwork will be safely delivered to you in perfect condition. Visit latitudes.online to discover and buy art from Africa and sign up for our weekly newsletter. The project in Belgium, this pedestrian bridge that um, I've seen the renderings of, which uh, you are building, incredibly evocative um, and a functional installation, really. Mm-hmm. It's a, a functional sculptural installation that sits astride a river and on these banks. And that came about as a result of your research and, and, and happening upon the story of all Panda Fanana, who had moved to Belgium as a migrant and had this outsized, you say, but hidden impact on uh, the city that he lived in. Um, Just tell us a little bit about that, how you came across it, and most importantly, why this is a story that needs to be kept or remembered top of mind as uh, people will inevitably be traversing it once it's built by 2025, I think.
0: Yes, so the brief for the project was just simply to build a pedestrian bridge. And I remember that when we got the invitation to compete for this project, I thought – I don't know who the other architects are, but I imagine that some of them will know the Belgian context really well, and there'll be an interpretation of, you know, some kind of vernacular Belgian roof system or architectural construction or something. And the thing that I always think about when I enter into a project is what can I bring to this project? What do my people and my context have to say in an environment like this? And I'm always thinking about these points of resonance. And so when we started to do research for the project, the first thing that I found is that Wilford, um has a very particular place on the waterways. And because of that placement, it was one of the most active places that brought people from the Congo. And when we started to look into it, it's a very small town. I had never heard of it myself before the project. One of the most important activists, for me, arguably perhaps the most important activist from the Congo, um, who was there, was Paul Panda-Fanana. And he first studied in Wolfwerda. He was a genius. He became a horticulturalist and his research contributed to what the landscape of Belgium looks like. He then fought for Belgium in the war and, like many people from the Congo, was treated with utmost violence and discrimination. And he then used his position to advocate for people from the Congo. He organized several Pan-African conferences all over Europe with Du Bois and several others. He really was an astute Renaissance thinker and person in, you know, he really believed in this wave of change and in making it happen. He advocated for the wages of black people to be more fair. So he also worked to alter the legal system. And he is completely underrated and I would say very, very underrecognized. And I really saw this as an opportunity yeah. to honor the story. And so architecturally, we looked at water architectures from the Congo and we found these incredible, beautiful boat structures often carved out from a singular bark. Okay. And when you look at photos of these boats, when they're placed next to each other, they almost become like gathering spaces. So you see people trade and gather and eat on them. And I thought that that was a very beautiful sentiment that we wanted to take into the project. So the bridge is a series of these canoes inspired by the Congolese boats stacked up next to each other. And each of them is then planted with species that come from Fanana's research. And there is the main structure, but there will also be a series of smaller boat structures that will be embedded along this previously industrial zone. They will also be planted, and each of them will act as little pollinators to rewild these ecologies where people toiled the land and lost their lives. And um, I think that this, you know, it's a very important sentiment that each of them is now becoming a little garden of reflection for people to know and to get to know who Fanana was. But also it's a reminder that it's in honor of the thousands of unnamed people who made a contribution and might not be recognized. And I think that this desire to resonate with stories like this really comes from being a South African. We can say, I can say the same for... My approach to working on the Islamic art biennale or or any of our projects for that matter I, I really think it's this proximity um to our history and also growing up in South Africa that has that has given me this desire
1: Sumaya, you know i, I found it incredibly touching reading about um about um paul fanana his life and of course how you found the story and I wonder, you know, I was just also just blown away by, as I said, this this rendering that just gives me a sense of, once again, of art, of a sculpture, of, you know, art, functional art, and something that we walk on, we appreciate, it's solid, it's tactile, it's tangible, and it doesn't, it's not something that we go to visit, um, you know, in, in a white wall space somewhere, mm-hmm. or something that will sort of... <laughs> Sip our wines and you know, look at and yes. you know, um, comment on, uh, sort of at a distance or try to intellectualize. Um, it really, it really just looks like such a beautiful, um, interpretation and figuration of the life and the work of such a driven man. But the very first Islamic um, Biennale, which you were the curator of, um, first of all, a fantastic and phenomenal achievement. Um, congratulations! I can only imagine. You know how how meaningful that might that was to you as uh, someone of a Muslim background and um, and practicing in Islam as well. That recently closed in May, and of course it was held at um, a very important venue that was uh, in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, held at the Western Taj Terminal uh, at the King Abdulaziz Airport, and of course um, back in uh, 1983 or 1980. If I'm not lying. Uh, the designers Skidmore Owings and Merrill won um, the, Aga Khan, the Aga Khan Award for that um, for, for the building. But mm. just what you said and what you said around your intention when curating um, the uh, Islamic Biennale was that you wanted to have um, conversations and viewpoints around Islamic art coming from inside the Islamic world, as opposed yeah. to from outside forces and outside voices and whatever those misrepresentations, misunderstandings um, might happen to be or have been historically. Mm. For instance, what were you trying to, I guess, in that process, clear up or finally establish about Islamic art as a whole? And by whole, I don't mean that it's monolithic, but it, in all its variants yes. and facets.
0: Yes, I think it was that, that it is so multifaceted and so various. And Islamic art is a very well-trodden, well-known canon. I don't have a background in Islamic art in, in a scholarly from a scholarly perspective. But I do understand that like much of the canon we have, that this canon is also in a way colonial. And of course there is much that you know, can be learned from the canon that we have around Islamic art, but it is it it comes from a seventeenth century definition from France, and it has always been defined from the outside, uh, from these outward gazes that have kind of orientalized the canon, and it's always been defined either through geography or through, you know, from a very kind of object perspective, through style and aesthetic and craft tradition, without really thinking about the ethos of the practice. And because of that, I think it hasn't really evolved. When someone says Islamic art all of us have something in our minds. We think about domes and arabesques, we think about calligraphy, and we think about mosaic. And of course, those traditions are, have made a fundamental impact on artistic canon worldwide throughout history. But I think that there's also so much to be said for the relevance and the resonance that Islamic faith, Islamic thinking, and Islamic philosophies can have on Canon today. And if we think about philosophies that come from the faith, if we think about the impact that they had for so many political movements, if we think about Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, if we think about Imam Abdullah Harun from South Africa, there's so much to be said for the weight that these this thinking can bring from a decolonial perspective. And for me, I think, These ways of being are oral, they're oral, they're performed, and they're, you know, they're often to do with ritual. And these things have a huge contribution to make to museology and to artistic practice. It's like you said, art is not about a white cube experience only. It's not about, you know, sipping a drink and being in a gallery. It's about being able to connect with these experiences and about seeing their relevance for our lives. And I wanted to work with a definition of Islamic art that is really coming from this place, and that is thinking about these ingredients of belonging, these ingredients of community, how this sense of spirituality is constructed through the faith, and to use that as fuel for artistic practice.
1: Sumaya, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to do something really cheesy and a little boring. Um, Oprah Winfrey (laughs) had a favorite question that she says she used to ask people quite a lot at the end of the interview. And that question is, what do you know for sure? Sumaya Valley, what do you know for sure?
0: I know for sure that there are always architectures waiting to happen in places that are overlooked. And that we have to hold hope in our practices, because if we don't, we will fail.
1: Do you think of yourself as incredibly brave as you move from your home of Johannesburg, which you know very, very well, or deng in South Africa, which you know very well, and you go to these different lands and these different countries and communities and societies, and you dare (laughs) to unearth and tell stories and create architecture that reminds them about their own history and their own society? Or is it an act of sisterhood and love and humanity?
0: I hope it's an act of sisterhood and love, but I also just feel compelled to. I don't think I'm brave at all. It's actually that I don't know what I would do if I didn't do that. And I actually... I don't know that I can design without that. For me, that is my call to design. It's my call to take up a pen and to imagine is is thinking about these stories and these histories.
1: Samaya, thank you so much for your generosity. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2Art Insure. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, i2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, i2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. i2 Art Insure is an authorized financial services provider. Thanks for listening to The Latitudes Podcast, the voice for art from Africa. Please support us by liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast. Of course, we also welcome your reviews as these help other art enthusiasts find the podcast. The Latitudes Podcast is hosted and produced by myself, Refilu Mpakanyane for The Rare Event Foundry. Spike Valentine is on Technical for DBO Media. And a big thank you to The Latitudes team.